Well, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that, the, um, that, this, that this phenomenon is, um, comes, from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information. And the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. Thank you for coming on again. I didn't listen to the show that we did. Oh my God, what was it, over a year ago? Yeah, maybe longer. Maybe longer. It's while you were still working on the book, and I don't even think you'd written a big chunk of it yet. Probably not. No, I think that was before I was in the thick of it. As I said before the before the music there, do you want me to read your, your uh, introduction? There was a CV in there, but I'm not going to read that because that was like 2,000 words long. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no. Um, I, I get, I'm, my name is Shannon Taggart and I am an artist and a researcher, independent researcher, I guess I would say. I've, um, you know, and I'm based in Brooklyn. Uh, I use photography and writing in my work and I am kind of a student of the paranormal, I guess I would say. I'm a student of, um, my my passion is really photography. So I try to bring um, those two things together. And I've been working on a project about spiritualism for 18 years that just wow. got compiled into a book called Seance, which was just released. Hence uh, our celebratory conversation today. Yes, and it, it, it is a, an amazing, beautiful book. I've seen a copy of it, but I, I had to send it on to somebody else that's <laughs> hopefully going to interview you. Um, I had a PDF of it, a, I don't know, I guess about a, month, a couple of months ago, 
and I was stunned by the PDF, but the you know the book itself, the heft of it, and the just as an object, it's an amazing thing. It's and it's printed so beautifully, and I mean just just to have it as an object is a even just for the pictures and what it represents in your effort. Um, Thank you. But you know you get um, a bonus. It's not just a picture book. The entire first um, I don't know how many pages is introductions by art critics, collectors. Dan Aykroyd did the foreword, which I'll ask you about. And then the last, what, 20, 30 pages or more of the book is all your commentary on what you were doing and how you got into it and how you felt about it. And we're going to talk about that too. And I think I asked you last time you were on, but just you don't have to go into detail about um, Lilydale, but how did you get interested in spiritualism? When I was in high school, my cousin went to Lilydale, uh, which is the world's largest spiritualist community. And she was just there visiting for the day. And she went into a message service, which is a situation where you just sit on a bench anonymously and mediums choose you out from the crowd. And this medium chose her and told her this, uh, you know, she was, it was her grandfather and he wanted to tell her he didn't die the way everybody said that he did. And um, she brought through these, this account of his death that was not, um, what we were told, uh, you know, that we, the story of his death was completely not what this medium told my cousin. Mm-hmm. And she went home to her parents to kind of be like, to laugh it off, be like, Oh my gosh, I went to Lilla down. This crazy lady told me this crazy story. And when she repeated it to my uncle, he started crying and said, um, no, that's true. Huh. And, um, and, you know, so I just remember my family being kind of um, shocked and, you know, uh, very um, taken aback by this. And it just always stuck with me. And, you know, I mean, I was in high school at that time. And then uh, when I became a professional photographer, I was looking for a project that interested me to do in my spare time. And I thought, why don't I try Lilydale? And I had always been fascinated with Lilydale because of that story, but I was never brave enough <laughs> to, to go, go there or yeah. to do anything. And then, you know, I mean, even when I, when I first started, I was too scared to get out of my car. Even I would just go there and like drive around and then drive home. Mm. <laughs> it's like an hour drive. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how it all started. So that you said what you, when you w- did go in there, I think you had a, you had kind of the same thing happen to you eventually. You said that, I remember what you said was you had an experience that actually made you feel nauseous because it was so, I don't know, disorienting or confirming or both. Yeah. I mean, after I, so I finally realized like, okay, well, I'm not going to just sneak around Lilydale and take pictures. (laughs) I, I should do something. I should formally present myself because that's what, um, that what that's what they require you, you know i mean before i wasn't i don't even know what i was thinking when i first started going uh, um but it that's was how most cool times. things start <laughs> yeah so then <laughs> i wrote to their board of directors and they invited me to one of their meetings and i presented my you know my my portfolio up until that point and i said i don't know what i want to do but i want to make pictures here and i can't tell you what will happen, but I just am very interested in learning about Lilydale. And they, 
were completely open to me and and still I'm really astounded at because I was so ignorant about mediumship or spiritualism all of it I didn't know anything and um yeah they welcomed me in and I basically you know slowly just by talking to the residents I learned about spiritualism and then so uh the story that you just referenced it was one of the first readings I ever sat in on was with this woman Gretchen Clark Mm -hmm. and she was giving a reading and at some point, you know, she start, she's giving this reading and then all of a sudden she starts laughing at a joke and then starts yelling at the air and say, I'm sorry, my brother just popped in and I told him not to do this at my readings anymore. And so she has a fight with the spirit of her brother. It was telling her she, a joke, right? Yeah, he popped in to tell her a joke and she's like, <laughs> Chapman, you know, you're not supposed to do this. Like, but she laughed, but then she scolded him and then she got her composure and she kept reading. And then she says, oh, Shannon, Margaret's here. And I said, oh, I don't know Margaret. And then, and she closed her eyes and then she looked back and she goes, no, she says, Texas, what does Texas mean? And when she said that, I immediately felt sick to my stomach because I remembered Margaret and it was my great aunt Margaret and she had recently died and she was from Texas. And so, you know, just the, the visceral, I, it wasn't a mind reaction. It was a body reaction, um, to the information. And then she said, Oh, there's a picture of her that is near you that everybody says, um, you look like her in it, or she looks like you, you know, you you resemble each other, this Mm -hmm. picture of her that's black and white. And it was true. She used to wear these crazy cat eye glasses with jewels. And like, I had a pair of those in in college and everybody would call me aunt Margaret when I wore them. (laughs) So, yeah, that was like my first um, uh, mediumship experience in Lilydale. What was the nauseous reaction? Most people, you would think when somebody would hear something like that, they'd be amazed. They'd be maybe delighted, but you had a visceral gut, not pleasant reaction. Why do you think that was? Well, I mean, I think with anything, you know, for lack of a better term, paranormal, there's always an attraction repulsion. And I think a lot of the time it's unconscious and I don't know what it is, if it's like a defense mechanism or, you know, I mean, I see it all the time with people who are like, they're interested in the topic, but if you make it too real for them, they become completely turned off. Mm. Um, oh, you told me about this by like at, uh, art museums and at, uh, showings and stuff like that. It's, it's fine if it's academic, but if you start getting too close, people seem to lose yeah. interest very quickly. Or, I mean, you know, you see it, you know, the paranormal is all over fiction and entertainment, but it's, um, you know, it's maligned in regular, you know, media and academia. I mean, as far as like the reality goes or getting close to the reality or the engagement of the supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. Hipsters don't want anything to do with it because it doesn't make them look like urban sophisticates or whatever. I'm not going to believe that. Yeah, but people are still, it doesn't, it's so funny though, because like, even, you know, you'll meet like the most, um, like austere skeptic, but if you really start talking to them a lot, and I, you know, I'm not also too, I'm not criticizing anybody here. I just, and I mean, it's a I don't, tendency I don't, you've noticed. That's, that's yeah. Funny. And I, I don't, 
I also don't like to label myself either because I have a lot of questions about all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but Oh, no, no, no. There, yeah. I'm not talking about a line between skepticism and belief. I don't believe mm-hmm. in that line anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and partially because of what you said to me, I think the last time we did the interview, which was you said, I take this seriously, but not literally, which I thought was a great attitude. It obliterates that skeptical believer line. It's more like, let's see what's going on here and take it as it comes. And if it's BS, then, you know, we can call BS on it, but we don't have to be triumphant about it. We just say, okay, we can ignore that and keep looking. Right. Or, you know, what I've come to believe is like the BS is part of it. Right. Yes. Yes. We can get into that. Um, but yeah, so usually when you get people talking, everybody has a spooky story. Everybody has a weird experience. I I mean, I have rarely met anybody who doesn't, or, you know, doesn't have like something happened that, you know, they just don't have a box for, Mm -hmm. or, um, or it happened to their mother or their best friend or, you know, um, usually when you get people talking, I feel like these experiences are pretty universal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I mean, not like, a, 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 yeah, there's, you know, levels of, of intensity. Yeah. And um, individual, uh, takes on it. It's all, it's all based around whatever the individual is. No, there's no two exactly the same. I don't think. Yeah. But you know, I've met people who are like, oh, I'm, I'm completely skeptic. I don't believe any of this stuff. And then the, the, those people often tell you the wildest story. <laughs> But they just don't have a, a place for it in their worldview. So they ju- it just kind of sits outside of it. Like, you know, yeah, Charles Fort, the damn facts. Yeah. And it's it's safe to, they're in a safe space to tell you about it because you're not going to, one, make fun of them. Or two, really make any big deal about it, like pointing it out in public or anything. Right. And then, um, yeah, in the book, um, so I... You you know I was I started out as a photographer so I was. Uh oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, you know what that is? I wanted to the the um, I'm not going to do it, but apparently the uh, Skynet satellites that uh, I think they're called no Star I can't remember, but anyway, Elon Musk sent up another string of those satellites. Mm. That big long string that looks like. It looks totally weird in the sky if you've seen videos of it. That's supposed to pass over L.A. in probably 15 minutes. Not over, but like near the horizon. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was, it was an alarm for me to go out and look at it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't think I can see it, though. I mean, it's too low near the horizon. Um, but I interrupted you, and you were talking about... Um, uh, well, I, I started just doing pictures, right? Right. And... So a lot of the pictures like allude to things, but you know, you don't have words. So there's no stories. I mean, pictures tell a different story than pictures tell stories in a different way than words do. Yes. But, um, for, for the book, it was the publisher's idea. Actually, he insisted that I write the stories behind the pictures. And once I started doing that, it was kind of like, um, yeah. (laughs) It was just they all like kind of unloaded. And when I'm writing them, some of them are really, you know, I'm reporting what other people have reported to me or like we're reporting in the, in the situation. And some of the stuff is pretty wild, like, yeah. you know, channeling, a- having aliens take over their body and morph their shape and um, 
you know, seeing and, and um, experiencing these uh, crazy uh, bodily changes, amounts of information. And when I'm writing them on the page and I just thought, I'm just going to write them. And I, I stated in the introduction, I'm doing this without judgment. Yeah. I am, I'm reporting as it was told to me. Mm-hmm. And I tried to just do it as clearly. I, I did almost 60 interviews for the book, mm. which was, you know, so a lot of times. So I'm going back to people. Maybe I photographed 18 years ago and like, remember that story or remember <laughs> that time. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that was, it was really interesting, but now I really wish I had recorded some of this. You know, there's a lot I missed because I wasn't taking notes the entire time, but I did all the memorable stuff I did put in the book mm-hmm. um, about people's experiences and the stories behind the pictures and right. the interactions that were happening, like information that I hope it just adds like another level to understanding the work. Well, it totally does because I look at some and of the now pictures. now that I've done that, I probably think I, I want to do a lot more writing. I think you should. Can you hear me okay? You can't hear me. Hello? Uh-oh, you can't hear me. Just a minute. What's I going on? Hear- Uh-oh. Can- hear me? Hello? Uh-oh, oh. craziness. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Sorry. Okay. Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Now I can. Okay. okay. Um, weirdness. Uh, um, what we're talking about and Mercury retrograde or whatever else you want put it down to i had this weird premonition that something technical would go wrong with the show and maybe that was it i hope that was all it was before we lose can you hear me okay yes can you hear me now yeah before we lose our train of thought in the last two weeks since we planned this interview i've started hearing noises around me that aren't that are like something dropping or piece of piece of paper being rustled or a house settling noise, which we don't have here. Mm. Really strange. And I, I don't know where the sound, it, it stopped in the last two or three days, but for like two weeks, I've been hearing sounds around me, like wow. anomalous sound. And they're just normal sounds, but I'm alone and there's nobody else around. <laughs> wow. Weird. So I don't know what that is. Maybe maybe it has something to do with the synchronicities going around uh, talking to you, even though we, we planned this. Um. <laughs> How did you get the trust of this group or the of the spiritualists? I think maybe we should actually tell people what the book is. The book is called Seance, and it's about your 18-year um, study embedding and friendship with people in the spiritualist community and related pursuits, right? Yes. Yeah. And um, I started out in Lilydale, New York, which is the world's largest spiritualist community, and then I started going to... Uh, Arthur Finley College, which is a spiritualist learning center in England. And then I started traveling to home circles and different private venues, basically in search of ectoplasm, pretty much in search of (laughs) trying to see if people were still trying to produce ectoplasm. Okay, what is that? (laughs) So people know. Yeah, so I always, um, in my, when I talk about the book, in my, you know, public talk that I give, I always say, you know, I first heard the term ectoplasm in Ghostbusters, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, and I feel like most people have. And I feel like ectoplasm is like a term that we're culturally aware of, but it's totally removed from its spiritualist context. Yeah. So ectoplasm is a substance that can emerge from the body of a medium that is basically it it's a symbolic substance that represents that life and death remain connected. So it's it's this it's sort of like the spiritual coming and taking form. Mm. So it's it's this I don't know, it's kind of a birth. It's like death and birth at once. Um it's a very uh liminal uh substance and um spiritualists believe that you know when mediums go into trance that they can that spirits can come and take form an ectoplasm which is drawn from the bodies of the sitters and the bodies of the medium and the medium has to be really powerful to be able to do this and when you see the pictures of ectoplasm they look like cheesecloth or right cotton or you know it looks very two dimensional but if you read reports of what you know it was like to sit in an ectoplasmic séance in the uh, late 19th century it's it stands in stark contrast to the images yeah uh, you listen to the descriptions of uh people in the book and also you had uh some experience with it which we'll talk about it doesn't sound like the the I'm trying to think of the words. It doesn't sound like the description you gave. If you just think of it as some substance coming out of people, um, that is a, a this liminal substance. People say, "Oh, there was a hand on me," and or, "Oh no, you had one with a, a, a kind of a ectoplasmic hand in front of you, and you said you thought you saw it, but you." Oh yeah. At the, yeah. what's his name, Carrie? I can't pronounce his last name. Muge. Um. Uh no, Gordon Garforth. No, oh well, Kai Kai Muge is he's uh he's a German medium who produces ectoplasm that looks exactly like the 19th century images. Mm-hmm. Um, but Gordon Gordon Garfoth is the one. Oh, I think are you talking about the emitted hand, the hand yes. coming out of the mouth? Yeah, yeah, that's Kai. Um, so yeah, Kai is a German medium, and he's like early 50s. Uh, travels the world and does these ectoplasmic seances very much in the tradition of the late 19th century seance. And the first time I ever saw him work, I was shocked because it was like literally like seeing those images come to life right before my eyes. But he's rare. There's not a lot of that going on in spiritualism, really, hardly at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a miracle that it's even happening now again. And it seems to be becoming more popular, which is also strange. Uh, when I started the project in 2001, the, anything like that was happening in private homes and private circles and were not publicized. Yeah, you said the spiritualist community was actually actively sort of suppressing it because it, to them it had bad, bad connotations. Yes, and they still are. Like even at Lilydale, there's a huge um, backlash about there's no... They do not want dark room seances on the grounds. So there's um, one of their... Meaning traditionally with the lights turned off and all that because they think that um, that's that's a throwback to when people were accused of fraud because of the darkness. Yeah, it's like a gateway to fraud for them. I mean, Mm -hmm. for the most part, this is what I say too, is 
if you go to a spiritualist church or um, a message service or anything um, contemporary, what you'll what you'll often find is what you see on television programs like the Long Island Medium, light rooms, um, a nicely dressed woman um, just talking in a you know with candles maybe in tissue boxes and it's all just conversation in a white room. Mm-hmm. Really, I, for the most part, that 99% of the time, if you go to a spiritualist meeting, that's what you'll find. Um, but uh, you have to, people deep in the practice, in the privacy of their homes, or um, not at public services, um, are getting together and doing the physical mediumship stuff or the experimental stuff. And yeah, even at the Arthur Finley College, dark pitch black seances are banned now. They wanted to install thermal cameras, like heat sensing cameras and um, like military grade thermal cameras, because, you know, a lot of the mediums say, well, infrared, see the lore behind ectoplasm is that light will kill it. It's a light, it's light sensitive, just like photographic materials. Mm -hmm. And it's, if you um, expose it, to light before it's ready, it can damage the medium's body. That's, that's what, what people say. So everyone was like, Oh, well, can't we use infrared? And then the mediums will say, no, infrared can still destroy ectoplasm. So Arthur Finley college proposed military grade thermal cameras (laughs) to be installed so that mediums could work in the pitch black as long as these thermal cameras were running and they could not find any physical mediums to take them up on the software. <laughs> so, you know, it, they, they, they tried, they tried to do protocols and it just doesn't work. So it's banned and it's banned in Lilydale. And actually that's part of the problem with my book is that it's not a problem. I mean, I don't see it as a problem. I see it. I see myself as the diplomat of spiritualism, meaning, um, you know, some people believe dark room seances are the way backwards. Other people believe, oh, well, it's been that way since the beginning and we need to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're going to evolve or kind of like develop new systems, new ways of working. Um, and so that debate is alive and well in my book. Whereas like I had one medium friend call me up and say, I can't believe you gave so much space in your book to Kai. Oh, I'm just really disappointed in you, Shannon. <laughs> oh, yeah, but, yeah. I mean, I, I I do the same thing. People are like, I don't even mind you talk to that person. It's like, I want to find out what people are thinking and what right, their motivations and, are and what, you know, and there may be something here that I'm closing myself off to if I don't open myself up to all aspects of whatever the subject might be. And um, it sounds like you're doing the same thing. Just because this stuff needs to be, you're, you're, you're almost, you're not almost, you're an academic about it. Let's look at it in, in the plain light of day or night and whatever, but let's look at it in an even handed way. Don't pass judgment because if you start passing judgment, then you become, I don't know, I guess you, you, you will close off your experience. You'll close off the experience of the reader. Right. And I, I say to them, well, don't you want to know what he's doing? Because <laughs> you'll refuse to sit in his seances, but at least now I'm reporting on it. Yeah. Although Kai, Kai does do a very good job of reporting on himself. <laughs> he's got like a law, a blog that is just unbelievable. Uh, I, 
you know, if anybody's curious about Kai, I would go to his blog, which is the Felix Circle. Uh, if you just Google Kai, Felix Circle, um, he documents everything that he does. Yeah, his last name um, is spelled M-U-E-G-G-E. Yeah. But, you know, I'm also, I'm photographing Kai as a way to kind of contemplate and think about also the mediums of the past and why do we, why do people do seances like this? What is the reason? I mean, I'm still asking that question, but now it's, I'm doing it in real time rather than with the history books. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I see it. Like I'm kind of like contemplating like, why, why do we, what, what is going on here? Why do we need this? Why is he doing this? Why do people, why does this appeal to people? Um, do you have any answers for those? I mean, you know, I, I don't know. Kai is a very, very interesting person. He's very well read and he call, he calls himself a neo-shaman, proudly calls himself a neo-shaman. And mm -hmm. this um, really angers a lot of um, spiritualists. I mean, it, Also, too, when you say, when I say the term spiritualist, it's a very loose term. Yeah, um, yeah the book you know, covers a lot of things that you wouldn't normally say. That's a spiritualist thing. But it's in the same general, it has the same trappings, it has the same uh, lineage, but they're doing different things. Right. So, so like, the, there's two organizing bodies. There's the National um, Spiritualist Association in America, and then in England you have the Spiritualist National Union. And, um, you know, I had a member of the Spiritualist National Union say, Everything that you do is worthless because you have even sat in a room with Kai Mugi. <laughs> like that's how much he's hated uh -huh. by some people in spiritualism. Right. And by using the term neo-shaman by, um, okay, one of his spirit guides is supposedly Aleister Crowley, the English occultist. Mm -hmm. You know, that is like, oh my God, it just enrages them. Because spiritualists don't consider themselves a cult. They, they consider themselves Western rationalists who are trying to merge Western rationalism with, with the practice of speaking with the dead. And yes. that it can be proven scientifically and that makes it okay and that makes it not a cult. That makes it not, um, you know, they don't do any sort of magic. I had somebody call me up once and go, can you refer me to a necromancer? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I don't know. What What are you saying? You know, I go, I'm, and in the back <laughs> of my head goes, well, I, I go, well, I do know somebody. I think I've met somebody who calls himself that, but that's not a medium. No. And she's like, oh, I, I just thought, I thought that was, that's what a medium was. And I'm like, no, um, it's different. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like spiritualists don't um, usually even they don't they they don't even do stuff like where they go to the dead. They open their consciousness, and whoever whoever of it, of the spirits wants to speak to them, that's way they are like a receptor, right? Rather right. than like, and they're not asking for <laughs> they're their uh, own ghost box, <laughs> right? And they're not asking for favors. They're not doing magic. They're not trying to change material reality. They're not doing workings. Mm -hmm. um, they're 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 just I, I kind of. The best way to describe spiritualists really are grief workers, mm. and they just want to open up the connection between the living and the dead for healing to happen on both sides. Yeah. Did it start out that way, 
Or was it just, well, it started out in America with the Fox sisters and the knockings on the walls and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the Fox sisters is when it exploded. It really, I mean, technically began with the shakers and then ah, I never really thought about that. Huh? And, um, because yeah, they would well, go into I'll, trances. Yeah. And then, um, and then the whole mesmerism thing. I mean, the people at Lilydale right. who became spiritualists, they were experimenting with mesmeric healings. Like, and that's part of spiritualism too, is like laying of hands, like mesmeris, mesmeric healings are still part of spiritualism. Mm-hmm. So it was like the shakers and then the mesmerism and, um, you know, the, the, the visions of Swedenborg, mm-hmm. like it all kind of like prepared it or it was kind of in the, in the ether. And then the Fox sisters, the event with the Fox sisters. Kind of and catalyzed it. Mark, yeah. Kind of like made it explode. And then it went into, you know, you say spiritualism and it's not, like you said before, it's not this one thing. It's all these different forms and all these different influences. And, you know, the, the main body, it seems like, has a certain idea, just like any any group. The, the, there's like a overarching body that says that they speak for everybody, but then there's heretics and offshoots and, and uh, individuals and all these people not necessarily associated with, but people associate them and therein the uh, conflict happens, I guess. Mm-hmm. And you've experienced that firsthand. There was one thing I wanted to ask you about when you saw the Kai's ectoplasmic hand, because uh, other well, other places in the book and also other people have described this. I mean, I've been reading this since I was a kid, but the ectoplasm has a very strange, like often off-putting smell. Yeah. Um, there's a quote in the book uh, from someone I know who wanted to remain anonymous but she's like she says you know you'll hear oh it's earthy or it smells like a bag of potatoes or like rotting or or um but some people use more uh sexual analogies for the scent Mm -hmm. and um this friend of mine said oh you know when the ectoplasm came out Everybody was like giggling and just saying, oh, well, well, it smells earthy. And everybody in the room knew it smelled like full on spunk. (laughs) (laughs) And so, um, yeah. And then I'll ask somebody else, oh, oh, does what does ectoplasm smell like? Oh, it smells like ozone. Oh, it smells like, yeah, like, um, yes, but it's supposed to have this like very, it's fragrant um, in a very uh, way that's biological that yeah it's almost like somebody it's like it it could even be a bad breath smell i suppose mm-hmm. that the yeah the scent and the sounds of it like you know there's, there's like a sounds lot. well i mean mediums will make you know they will convulse sometimes yeah. or um moan or you know like act as if they are literally giving birth to something uh-huh and so it's this, there's a lot of birth in this, this these death communications. And hmm. I mean, that's one, one thing I'm fascinated with, the connection of birth and death. And yeah, it's like straddling this liminal line. Didn't you say somewhere in the book or somebody said that ectoplasm, is, or maybe you just said it now, ectoplasm is a liminal substance. Yeah, I just, yeah. Um, and, you know, as, as a woman who has given birth and had a very traumatic birth and almost I could have died in childbirth. I mean, in another era Mm -hmm. I would have, 
Um, and that, that actually, you know, when I first got, I had emergency surgery. And then after the nurse said to me, oh, isn't it funny? You would have been one of those women who died in childbirth. And I'm like, no, that's, <laughs> that's not, not that really funny. funny. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, just when you're giving birth, you it's very dangerous. You are at the precipice of of where you could die in order to bring forth life. So, mm. you know, I, I kind of see that as the way I look at all of these actions of the medium. Is it imitating it or is it is it actually going there? I don't know, but like there's some, this birth-death connection with bringing forth ectoplasm or even bringing forth the trance state within your body, bringing forth right. another another personality or another being or another spirit from inside of you. There's, uh, it's There's a very... physiological um, component to it. Yeah. Has anybody ever been hooked up? They must have been hooked up to EEGs or whatever while all this is going on. I mean, they have during trances and all that, but like a very extreme state, like an like a emanating ectoplasm. Has there ever been an EEG tracing or blood pressure or anything like uh, vitals while somebody's doing this? Yeah, I mean, there's been tons of that stuff. And um, I think a lot of it was inconclusive. I mean, you know, they used to say that like some of the early, early seance researchers would weigh the medium before and after and say that they lost 60 pounds when the entity was actually out out and about in the room. Mm -hmm. Crooks, I even think, William Crooks, was like one of the most, you know, you can't get... um, more hardcore as a scientist than William Crooks, but he was also like the first person to do seance photography and, or I mean the first person to photograph like a spiritualist materialization or, or like at least arrange it. He was an expert in photography. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting. And, um, that, that's one thing I, I try to stress in my book that nowadays we see, or, you know, if you talk in certain, in certain circles, spiritualists are seen as simpletons or they're they're just dummies or they just buy into anything or they just um oh they're they're not very discerning and it gets spiritualism gets lumped in with every single thing that's could be termed new age and um but but actually spiritualist has spiritualism has the most badass intellectual history <laughs> and um so many interesting compelling creatives and scientists and um, intellectuals were like interested in experimenting and, and um, you know, involved yeah, well, it was a, it was a in subject, spiritualism. A subject for legitimate um, inquiry, I think before something clamped down in the early 20th century and decided all of this stuff was, was BS. I, I did a talk on um, called It Exists, What Do We Do About It? And I pointed out that the SPR, the Society for Psychical Research, had all these incredible thinkers and Nobel laureates and everything on their boards, which you would not, that's unthinkable now. But in the late 19th century, it was, um, it was fairly normal. Yeah. And I mean, I think um, because in that era, you know, they're discovering germ theory and radiation and electricity was being harnessed and um, you know, uh, uh, disembodied communication with the telephone and right. um, all of these things where it's like there was a real reason to think what else can we discover that is operating beyond our senses. Um, 
so I think there was like a almost, you, you know, there was like a real openness to the possibilities of what else w- could be discovered in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and how they tried to do it was through photography. Because that was what was available, yeah. Um, and I, I, I say this in the book too, that like it's almost like when, when spiritualism and photography were put into contact with each other, it's almost like they exposed each other's um, – you know, limitations, Hmm. you know, through, through their engagement, through their dance with each other, like trying to photograph seance as we learned about photography's, um, complicated relationship with truth. And we learned about spiritualism's, um, you know, subjective truth. Um, so yeah. And the two were very important to each other and that's not been, that's been written out of the photo histories for sure. Yeah. So when we talk about subjectivity, as you mentioned with the spiritualist uh, communities, and then you talk about something supposedly objective, which is photography, how do those affect each other in, in what you're doing? I mean, how does, how does the um, subjective become less subjective and the objective become less objective i suppose with the uh cross-pollination or at least the the this conversation you said that uh, photography and, and spiritualism had from the beginning how do they affect each other how have they affected each other well i mean the first time that the photographic reality is called into question is through william mumler who was a spir- first spirit photographer i mean he he so he started creating these images that looked as if the living and dead were brought together. You know, it was p- portraits of people with ghosted figures next to them or behind them. Um, hand on their shoulder or whatever. With the hand on the shoulder. Um, these carte visites that supposedly showed spirits. And he was brought to trial for fraud. And people started to set, to to debate or call into question, like the like, oh, photography is not. It's a representation that can be manipulated. It's not what you see is what you get. It's not a re- perfect rendering of reality. It's something other. And so, that's the first time that it's kind of publicly investigated, or you know, it was literally put on the stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wasn't, he wasn't convicted of fraud, but he was, um, pretty much his career was ruined and he was, he died, um, miserable and broke. Uh, but yeah, like, so that's the first time it's, it's called into question. And I mean, I think, I mean, nowadays with all you can manipulate, but, yeah. phot- but, but photography is always, you've always been able to manipulate. It's, it's always, uh, um, it's an abstraction. It's not, it's, uh, it's something other than what it represents or what it, what it, what it, what it depicts. It's got its own way of working. And, and and I always say this too. It's like, it's very interesting that it's raw materials are light and time. You know, (laughs) you're using light and time and glass, you know, to, and when you were shooting film, it's, you know, then it's on silver, um, mm-hmm. now we're, you know, now we're on digital. So it, it is like, it's very, um, alchemically interesting if you think about it. Yeah. Um, 
but we, you know, we take it for granted. I think I, I, you know, but being a photographer, even the most pragmatic materialists, meaning like, even like Annie Leibovitz, who's like one of the most famous commercial photographers of all time, who shoots like very straightforward images mm-hmm. of, you know, beautiful people. And although she started out very, working very journalistically, you know, even, even somebody like her, she, she'll, when she speaks about photography, she speaks about its mystery and its ability to change reality, even when you don't attend it to. And, um, you know, so even these people who are working very materialistically with with photography, when they speak about it, they're they they're kind of saying they they work with it because it's magical. You know, like they, it has like a real true mystery. There's mm-hmm. true mystery in that process. How is and, that? Go ahead. I'm sorry. And so I'm trying to like contemplate that those ideas of photography, um, and bring them into. Spirit, the spiritualist, not to prove, but to just um, kind of see where it goes, you know, experiment with 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 photography as like a a process in and of itself that has its own way of working and its own. It's an automatic process, which the spiritualists revere the automatic process as holy. Any you know, trance states, automatic writing. Um, automatic drawing, all of their art is automated. Like um, they have a real um, reverence for automation, the automatic process. So by embracing um, photography's like automatic, meaning like trying to play with uh, the process and how it automates things as much as possible, I realized I was being very spiritualist in a way, in a sense, by revering this automation, you know, letting the shutter just go open and decide what's going to happen. Um, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm getting too technical for people who aren't photographers. Yeah. Well, it totally makes sense to me because, um, there's a rule I think, or it's something in, in art where you let your process determine what is coming out the other end rather than forcing yourself onto the process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in photography, these the, these elements are almost thrown into more stark reality than they are in something where you have a lot more, quote unquote, control, like painting or drawing or printmaking or whatever. Supposedly, this is an objective uh, machine that is showing you something objectively. But when you start playing with it and you start using it and you start doing things with it, you find out that all the mistakes is or mistakes or unexpected things is where that that the spirit of um, what you're doing comes to the fore. And uh, that's what I wanted to ask you about the, the um, spiritualist photography. When you started doing this, did you start out just trying to document exactly what was going on in the best way you could? Or did you think other things were going to happen that you didn't, ex- you know, uh, when stuff started happening, you didn't, ex- that you didn't expect, was that surprising to you? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah. I mean, I started out, very straightforward, like just trying to be poetic in a way that a straightforward documentarian or, or photojournalist is, um, tells stories, which is, you know, within the realm of the materialist reality, but, you know, you can be poetic or, or make a beautiful picture of something that's, um, you know, just plainly happening. Uh, and then, 
you know, I think I'm pretty sure I talked about this on your last episode. I started to have these like happy accidents with my camera where like I'd have these accidental things happen and they'd kind of it resonate. Bears, it bears repeating, Shannon. That's why I kind of why I asked. Maybe we can get a little deeper into it. Yeah. Um, so I just started having this like, you know, I got this one purple orb right by this woman and she was in the Lilydale Museum and it was like in two different frames and and um, at the same spot in her body, but two different rolls of films, two different frames. I never had it before. I printed it out, brought them to her and she said, oh, that's my husband, Bob. And I had never thought about like a photographic anomaly being meaningful or like having meaning or being imbued with meaning or even reading it that way. You know, up until that point, I was trying to avoid purple orbs, yeah. you know, as, as a good professional photographer should. Like, you know, you, you, you need to control your medium so that you don't get purples orbs just slipping into your pictures. That's why people <laughs> have lens hoods. Um, and yes. so, uh, yeah, so that, that stuff like that happened. And then, you know, in the say in the one seance, we were using these red lights and this woman had a red light under her and everybody else in the room was seeing the second face right next to her that looked exactly like her, but it wasn't her, but it was similar, but different. And everybody's seeing this clairvoyant face like floating right next to hers. And I didn't see this face. I saw a woman holding a flashlight and I took a picture that I meant to be a straightforward, sharp picture. And when I got my film back, I, it was the exact, exactly as everyone was describing. There was a second face floating peacefully right next to her that like looked the same but a little bit different and I was just so shocked by this uncanny synchronicity I mean I understood the technical like why that happened I had my camera on a tripod and you know it was a long exposure and there was probably some movement involved um but that didn't matter it was that was like kind of beside the point I was just kind of focused on how this the exposure handed me the metaphor hmm. without me. It was like, it, I couldn't have made that picture with my mind. There was no way. That's what I was struggling with. Like, oh, I'm making these, you know, I'm in these charged atmospheres with all these like invisible presences and invisible messages and, you know, visible bodies w in contact with invisible beings. And, and, and my pictures were not showing any of this good stuff they were just kind of boring and straightforward and so once I made a picture like that I was kind of like oh I could just give it over to the process and try to put myself in as many like chance encounters or like experiment with time exposures or you know like just letting the the shutter kind of render the metaphor. And so the more I did that, the more um, interested I became in experimenting that way. Um, but the book has a lot of straightforward pictures too. It does because what you're doing is you're documenting also, I mean, it's a document too. It's documented what's going on. I was going to have you read this passage, but I didn't send it to you. It's the one that uh, you just described right now. But what you said at the end um, really affected me. I thought it was a really one of the main points of the book. You said, I realized that this ac accidental photograph was more psychologically true to the event than the photograph I in had intended to take. My camera shutter created the perfect metaphor for what was, to me, an invisible experience. I found this mishap thrilling. It was synchronistic and uncanny. It felt as though I had opened the door to someplace else. Yeah. And yes. Go ahead. 
No, yes, that's exactly what it felt like. It felt it felt important when I made that picture. Mm -hmm. And did, did things just start happening synchronistically after that, or just it just kind of things would come and go, and you sort of have to look for them, or other people have to look at your photographs and look for them, or how did it manifest after that? I mean, I I experimented a little bit with time exposures at that point, but then you know the photographer in me stopped do, stopped myself from going that way mm. because you know it's like oh it's just a blurry picture it's just a blurry picture like it's trick photography um you know or you know it's just it's meaningless it's just blur it's just you're you're not doing anything meaningful even though it felt the accidental one felt meaningful. Um, and then I, I came to realize like, well, who cares? And also what is time? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like it's just a blur. It's just a time exposure. Okay. Well, what is a, what is a compile? What is, what is compiling time in one, um, kind of frame? What is that? I don't know. And I had like, um, one of my photo professors, my former photo professors said to me, well, you know, when we photograph track stars, you know, or like athletes, we photograph them, you know, sports photographer at like, I don't know, five thousandths of a second. Yeah. Sometime with the, some of those lenses and, um, yeah, those, you know, those huge ones that can get a five thousandth of a second that get, gets enough light in there to actually get a decent picture. Yeah. Right. So that is completely abstracting time. Yeah. In a way that your eyes will never, ever, 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 ever see. Mm -hmm. Um, but we take that as factual because it's sharp. But I'm kind of like doing the opposite in this situation hmm. where I'm – and she kind of made the, the point that like how is it different? I don't know. Is it different? I mean I guess it, it is but it isn't in a way. I mean you're just abstracting time in a different – just a, using it in a different um, – on a different setting. And you're opening up people's um... – perceptions to something that uh is it seems more natural than that now that you pointed out it seems far more natural that something is blurred in time or whatever than something that is frozen in time because your the time does not flow for us in moments it flows for us in a flow yeah that's and that, that's another thing about like i started to think about like, how much photography was really like spiritualism in a lot of ways because it really the photos really make they make the living dead and they make the dead living you know, I mean, because we don't see people frozen in time, right? So right. photographs, if you're living, it freezes you, it holds you there. Mm -hmm. And then at the same at the same time, once you're gone and you have an image of somebody who is dead, they are there in some real way. They're yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so I think like there's a lot to be said about like the way both spiritualism and photography blur the line between life and death um, through representation, through, you know, whether it's coming through a medium uh, or a performance of a medium. And I, I say the, the word performance, not like in a, yeah, not where discounting anything a, else, yeah. that, <laughs> but it is, it is performed. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have the representation through the image through the lens, through the, the photograph. Um, and I'm very interested in these connections. What does a spiritualist community think about your photographs? Do, do they talk about it in the same way that you do? Because you said the first time you showed that 
um, purple orb thing to the person you took a picture of. She goes, oh, that's my, what was her husband, her dead husband. Yeah, that's my husband, Bob. Yeah. And why uh, would, why do you, did she explain to you why she said that? Um, no, I mean, I understood that, you know, it was this, uh, she felt like it was his, his energy near her that, that I was able to capture or that somehow snuck onto the film. Yeah. Um, I'm so hesitant to say, well, what was wrong with your camera? But because I don't think there anything was. It was just something that showed up and you didn't know what it was because you what you said, you'd never seen something like that on him. I mean, it was it was really strange because I wasn't shooting into the sun. Right. And, you know, it was like some sort of light leak or something. I I don't know. Um, But I really I really honestly never had had it happen. Hmm. Yeah, because it's it's hard to get out of a literal mindset on this. How do I get out of the, is it happening or is it not? Is it depicting something that's real or is it not? What your book is doing is saying, well, let's throw that out for a while and examine what's in between that. Yeah, and I mean, that's what I think. Um, I think some mediums that I've worked with are really frustrated with my work because. Yeah, back to that know, question. I'm sorry. All, all spiritualist efforts are. Efforts for evidence. So, you know, there's a lot of beautiful art that has come out of spiritualist efforts. You know, like they have these beautiful automatic paintings that look, uh, you know, they look like pastel, photographic pastels. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they would, they would be in seance and there'd be a blank canvas and the lights would go down and then the medium would sit by the canvas with a, with a jar of paint and go into trance. And then, you, you know, supposedly you'd see them slowly emerge from the canvas, these, these, these faces. Um, but then, you know, you turn on the light and there'd be this beautiful painting, um, supposedly automatically rendered through the mediumship of the medium. And meaning not, not channeled through their hands, but just appearing. Okay. Yeah. Like, um, made without hands. Like, I think there's a word for it. A-C-H-I-E-R- yeah, you have it in there, but I didn't write down the word. Yeah, um, it, you know, it's a Christian term for, uh-huh. um, you know, that, that's used for other, you know, like the Shroud of Turin would, would be an example as well. Um, but it's these, It's almost the, like my, an imported painting, except all the stuff was there to begin with, the raw materials. Yeah, but, but these paintings are not meant to be beautiful objects, even though that they are they are supposed to be evidential, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's evidence. Um, so everything in spiritualism is an effort at evidence. So for somebody like me to come in and say, I'm not trying to, you know, create prove evidence. Anything. I'm just, yeah. yeah, I'm not trying to prove anything. I think they're kind of like, well, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> if you don't want proof, then what are you doing here? That's what everybody wants. But they've been very patient with me. And even though, you know, I have a lot of friends who are in the book who disagree with my angle. Like, you know, there's one person I can think of in particular who is like, well, why didn't you say that this person came through my seance and, and danced with everybody? And it's like, because, or that, that it was fact and you saw it. And, and because, first of all, it's a very subjective experience for everybody who was in the room. And I understand that, but, yeah. um, 
it's also like I can't tell anybody that, and then I could t- I could scream it from the rooftops, and it doesn't mean people are going to believe it. Right. I'd rather I'd rather invite people to a question rather than <laughs> force an answer on them. Right. Um. But you know they get very some get very frustrated. Like I'm not speaking the literal truth of what and what I want to. And it's not because I'm trying to do, be disrespectful. I'm actually trying to um, invite people in to question these things. Yeah. And I, and I question them all myself. You know, I'm still in this state of, I, I don't have any answers. I have more questions um, at this point. Um, I think if you had any answers, I don't think anybody would have heard of you. <laughs> you would never have done this book if you had answers. Yeah, I always tell people too, the people who tell you they have all the answers, run from them. Yes, run very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that the spiritualists are so intent on this idea of um, proof because they figure that the society around them is built on this kind of evidential proof and that's what they need for, you know, do they need people to believe them or is this just an internal thing with them? Well, it, it stems back from the the beginning of spiritualism. As it developed, it became an effort to merge religion and science. Oh, okay, okay. And, you know, that's still, it, it, I mean, it's it's only a 170-year-old religion. And it's, it's still, if you go to the website of the National Spiritualist Association or the SNU, the Spiritualist National Union in England, It'll say spiritualism is a philosophy, a religion, and a science. And they're not, they will not give up that scientific part. And they really believe that one day we're going to prove that spirits interact. Um, And all the, like, for example, spirit photography, a lot of those images, okay, they look manipulated. Like they could be double exposures or, you know, it's cheesecloth hanging out of a mouth. That was a magic trick. Like that's, that's what many people believe of those pictures. Mm-hmm. Spiritualists, um, often dismiss that history because, okay, they're either fake, but they're, they're trying to find the ones that are actually real. Whereas others, or, you know, myself included, I, I'm kind of like, well, there are also this iconography that visually represent what spiritualists believe. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to me as a photographer and as an artist that spiritualism was the first religion to create an iconography using photography rather than painting. I mean, that is oh, something yeah. wow. in and of itself. But spiritualists don't, they don't value that part of the history because they want those photographs to be purely evidential mm-hmm. and because they fail to convince it's even for spiritualists. I mean, it also too, when I'm speaking about spiritualists, it depends on the spiritualist. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there, it's a self there isn't a dogma like, like, you know, in Catholicism, there's much, I mean, not that Catholics don't disagree about things, but, you know, there's no dogma in spiritualism, really. I mean, it's, there's a lot of leeway about um, the way people practice and the way people believe and describe these interactions with spirits. But, um, you know, many spirits like, oh, God, that, that it's embarrassing history because obviously those are fake pictures. Or they'll be like, well, some of them were real, but some of them were fake. Not like, 
even just appreciating the visuals of them, that they represent something about spiritualism, that is not honored. You know, and we don't, we don't, for other religious art, we don't hold other religious art to that. Um, no, it's kind re- of a it's standard. representing an idea. It's not representing a a, a literal thing, right? It's Even though maybe showing a literal thing, there's information about that religion coded in that uh, in that image, right? But because spiritualism resists the purely religious label, mm-hmm. I guess that's that's why, right? You know, they okay. don't just want to be religion; they want to be religion and science together right we're we're bringing those two things together and it has you know the photographs are one of the things that kind of blew up that um that effort you know because they couldn't nothing definitive yeah it's never anything definitive maybe that's why they were allowing you into these things because they thought you might be able to help out with being Definitive about it, even though they didn't know that you didn't want to be <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why they did. I mean, they seem like I mean, nice people from what you told me. I mean, the thing I get about spiritualism, the impression I get from your book is that they have a certain system of uh, a philosophy. I'm not even going to call them a system of beliefs because, you know, it's not a religion, they say. I guess I'll honor that. But they don't seem to go out and evangelize. They don't really care if you believe them or not, I guess. But they are looking for this. I didn't realize they were looking for this um, objective proof in some way. But yeah, I don't get the impression that they're like any other kind of religion where they're where, where you have to believe them. I think they. No. I think most of them really don't care whether you believe them or not. Right. Um. I. I like to say they hold the space for people who have lost loved ones and want to want to communicate with them or have had, you know, I've met umpteen million people who I never thought I'd be at a spiritualist church, but I had this strange experience after my daughter died or after my mother died or after Mm, my father mm -hmm. died. Um, you know, they kind of hold the space for that. Um, Oh man, you're welcome when you come here. If you need us, we're here. And that's another part of it too. It seems like they're very focused on one of their main tenets is to help people. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not saying there hasn't been fraud and there isn't still some fraud and maybe some of it's not even intentional fraud. Some of it's misguided or like when they say mediums are doing cold readings or all of that, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. I mean, for the most part in generally almost, I mean, way more often than not, I felt, I found very sincere practitioners who were called to this work to in effort to bring healing and are not making a lot of money or any, and, in some cases that you brought yeah, up. Yeah. Um, that was, that's very, that's the exception mm-hmm. is anybody who makes a lot of money off of this stuff. I mean, I know, I know we see a lot of that like on TV or that's the ones that we, we see, but not when you get into the, the thick of it of the people who've spent their lives being mediums and stuff, that's really not, the case for many of them. Mm-hmm. Before we get too uh, far along, okay. uh, I wanted to ask about, and we brought this up at the beginning of the uh, program, or you brought it up actually, the role of attitude, of hoaxing, of 
just things that you people would normally say that okay well that's you know the, this throws the whole thing into into question because the, the people are intentionally making things up or hoaxing and i thought there was a great quote from Eusebia Palladino the mm-hmm. the medium from the was she early 20th century uh yeah late late, late 19th, 19th early, early 20th yeah, yeah. She said, hold me, What the quote you had at the beginning of the chapter was, hold me tighter, I'll want to cheat. Yeah, hold me tighter, I'll cheat. <laughs> or I'll cheat, yeah. Yeah. That's a great quote. <laughs> that encapsulates yeah, that idea in one quote. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, does the, yeah, I guess, you know, it would be easier than doing the real stuff or, you know, she just would find herself like um tempted i mean Giuseppe is a great example of somebody who was caught cheating but also was also astounded some of the most uh you know established scientists in the yeah. history yeah of the pre- of science uh you I know i mean everybody like, who was know, anybody was and... i mean the curies sat with her like right Charles Richet, Nobel Nobel uh, laureate in medicine, um, coined the phrase "ecto" or coined the term "ectoplasm" after being in her séance and having this ex- mysterious experience with her hands. She had these, um, you know, was said to produce like multiple hands while she was do while she was in entranced and tied um, down. Yeah, and uh, but then she was also famously caught cheating on yeah. numerous occasions. <laughs> yeah, but Roche actually said this. Another quote that I really like was um, he asked it what he had witnessed. He responded, I never said it was possible, only said it was true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which goes to the yeah. heart of this. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, also, too, I really understand that you can't study this stuff really in any real way unless you are have knowledge of stage magic. Yeah. Too, um, but I mean, you know, I I keep going back to the the figure of the shaman, you know, and for lack of a better term, I'm using the word shaman because I understand that that you know when that's a very blanket term. Yeah. But I mean, I'm talking about like a, the primitive, the first religious figures. Mm-hmm. They were doctors and and comedians and stage magicians and healers. And like all in there and performers and you know, they were all wrapped into one, you know, yeah. these, these roles are very separated now in our society, mm-hmm. but you know, they all stem from the same figure, which is the shaman, you know, so the, or even in, you know, okay. So in Hindu, right. What, what's the, the meaning of the word illusion is something that's neither true nor false. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know. I I don't fully understand what, where the trick, where tricks lay, but I don't think that, um, like stage magic tricks are that far from, um, you know, all this other stuff that could possibly be happening as well. Right. There's a, there's a very blurry line between, I think a lot of this, what would people would call hoaxing or whatever, I think a lot of the people that are involved in it, like Palladino, would just call it uh, priming the pump, really. Right. And I mean, there's also, too, like, um, exposés like the Psychic Mafia, which is hilarious. 
book from the 70s of like this fake medium who tells a story about like how he was faking all these seances and everybody at his spiritualist camp was faking seances and you know i mean there's there's that too there's mm-hmm. definitely i mean the whole history is fraud runs rampant like oh, i don't know maybe it's mostly fraud but i mean it's so intimately yeah. connected with um, the stuff that is not meant as fraud, that it's it's just fascinating to me. And I didn't even realize this till um, Jim McLennan was interviewed a few months ago, probably about a year ago, I think, um, on Coast to Coast. And he was talking about the, what was the group that he was with in? Um, the Sorat. Yeah. yeah. His, um, his book is great. The Entity Letters. Yes, that's it. Highly recommended. Um, yeah, he gets to the... <laughs> So I do this lecture series every day or every year, every summer at Lilydale. I was going to ask where, you about that. Um, where I, you know, try to bring in academics who are talking about spiritualism or related topics. Mm-hmm. And I invited Jim McLennan this year and he was for part of it. He, so he studied the Sorak group, which was a, like, they didn't consider themselves spiritualists, but they were a seance group that was active for 40 years in Missouri. And he's spent a number of years studying them. And he had these films that were made by the parapsychologist W.E. Cox. Mm -hmm. And these, these films, he had built like this fish tank mini lab that was supposed to control, he was supposed to control the phenomena and um, the spirits would like write letters in there and, and like blow up balloons and do all this like completely whacked out stuff. And when you watch these films, it looks like stop motion, absurdist, yeah, like Dada film. Yeah. You know, and are you and, kidding with this stuff? You would say if you saw that. <laughs> right. And so Jim had me play a clip of it because it related to what he was talking about. And then I just kept going with it. And he's like, turn these things off. These things ruin my career. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and i said out loud at the guy i said jim i could watch these all day can't we just watch these films <laughs> i think they're great um but he very much had a sense that Can you the, see the him phony... online somewhere yeah it, um jim mclennan has a youtube oh okay. he has a youtube channel i mean okay. you could look up sora yeah i all highly right. recommend them they're they're like so absurd and but when you read what was actually happening, like and what Cox, all the you know experiences Jim had and um, W. E. Cox had, like constructing these things, and it was J. B. Ryan's idea to create this box. <laughs> um, you know, it's really wild, wild story. The book is great. Um, anyway, but like Jim kind of says, I came to think that. It was the 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 phony quality masked the genuine phenomena or like kept you away from it or like stopped you from believing it. Or, you know, it was like part of maybe, you know, it these was are self-negating my now, but maybe it was like a part of um, part of the way it hid itself. Yeah, it self-negating, just like uh, the UFO phenomena tends to be a lot of ways. Right, right. So, um, yeah, but also, too, they have this, like, very um, 70s, like, home movie quality, too, that I like a lot. Just 
what are they on eight millimeter or something i guess yeah i don't even know but um which looks yeah. jumpy to begin with anyway yeah so what is the stop motion of what was like time time lapse of what was going on in the boxes? Well, I mean, they had supposedly. like a motion tripper. So whenever a phenomena would happen, it would just like snap on. And I don't know exactly what happened. But when you watch them, it looks like a stop motion animation. Yeah. Which is very it, immediately people would say, well, that's just stop motion. I don't mean why, why you're showing me this stupid stuff. Right. And yeah, I think that's there's a history of that in the in the paranormal. It's like something that looks so stupid and so comical. And the person that was there, it's like, no, it was happening in front of me, I swear. And you're looking at it from the outside and you didn't, you didn't see it with your eyes. And you just think, well, this sounds like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It makes no sense. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm going to look. There's a quote from Kai in my that I because I asked Kai. Uh, so Kai Mugi, the ectoplasm medium that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. He's a really interesting person to talk to about all this stuff. So I was like, why, you Do know, you speak he, English. Maybe I can have him on the show. Oh yeah. Yeah. He'd be a good guest. Um, yeah. He speaks English very well. Oh, okay. Um, he, so I was like, he kind of said to me once, well, you know, all occult imagery has this absurdist quality, you know, it's just part of it. Yeah. And I was like, why and <laughs> or you know so okay so, that so stupid I, people won't take it seriously well this is or, so i'm sorry so it. smart people won't, people who think they're smart won't take it seriously i think um well that i this is what he said so I'll, I'll read something from the book i just found it so i said kai and i have discussed the bizarreness of spiritualist imagery he says the phony grotesque quality is organically embedded this bizarreness opens up something in the spectator that would not become open without the spectacle. Kai talks about the holistic quality of the seance room and the importance of pushing the limits of the rational mind. It's the distortion of the perception of the physical world that opens our access to another. Our perception builds our reality, and perception needs to be destabilized so that things can happen. Mm. Darkness is a tool for these processes and for the experimental states that expand minds. The history of the supernatural is the materialization of the unknown. Something archetypal is taking place when the three-dimensional reality of the seance room is taken over. That's Kai. That's amazing. The first thing that came to mind when he said that, I, if, I, if I could take all of it that he said and put it in one phrase, would be a paranormal uh, isolation tank. Hmm. Yeah, so he's saying he kind of describes like the seance room also as like a sacred, you know, it's like a sacred space, sacred theater. You know, it's putting these, yeah. it's pushing your, it's pushing your mind and your senses and um, in a way that's going to open up uh, all their other, ac like access other areas. Yeah. It's okay if you scream and cry at a movie, but it's not okay if you scream and cry at a seance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so. Well, speaking of um, uh, proofs or um, experiments, I have to, people are going to hate me, but I don't know really almost nothing about the skull experiment. And mm. you talk about it quite a bit in your, in, in the text, in the book. Um, one thing that, fascinated me about it was the i did not know about this well as far as far as i know about the skull experiment did not know about the roles of unexposed film 
where they would just leave them in a room supposedly and then they'd come back, back with images on them but in the book you show images of them and they're not images of film with like exposed frames they're big long rolls with messages and artwork on them in yeah covering the roll like as if it was exposed at once in one long strip yeah they um so they had this so the skull experiment was a seance group that was active in england from 90 1993 to 1998 mm-hmm. and it was started by a man named Robin Foy and him him and his wife Sandra and a married couple of trans mediums uh the Bennetts they mm-hmm. were the other so it was only four of them were the basis of this this group and they started claiming all this phenomena and then people started flocking to this to their séance room to observe the phenomena and so they at one point the SPR people from the SPR Mm-hmm. had built a lockbox that had like, I don't know, four types of controls on it. Um, and they would put blank film in there and then they would, they would develop the film and they would turn it, the film rolls, the 35 millimeter photographic film rolls would turn into these like long scrolls that actually reminded me of like you know, papyrus or biblical yeah. like scrolls with like symbols and writing messages from Wordsworth and diagrams from Thomas Edison. And I mean, they're really, really the, the video and the photo and the audio that came out of the skull experiment is really astounding and strange. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever it is, whatever's going on, it's just very strange. Yeah. Even if they faked all of it or a lot of it, it's still amazing on that level. Yeah, it's, Which it's I, I'm not sure if they did, but it's really wild stuff. And um, so I became so obsessed with by this idea of in the skull. Also, too, they had they, they had a team of spirits called the photographic team who were like doing all this work behind the scenes. And but mm-hmm. I, I, I had this realization like w- w- the photographic materials are holy here. You know, Mm, yes, not it's not papyrus. It's it's not, um, you know, like we were talking about the Shroud of Turin before, you know, or I mentioned it, you know, it's it's almost like something like that where the the photographic material becomes the the um, holy object. Oh, right, right. And it's just plastic with silver nitrate on it. Right, but it's like you know when they have you see these symbols all laid out. It's just, it feels very religious. It feels very, um, you know. Yeah, you pre- reproduce some of it in the book, and I I had never seen them, and it was like I was stunned by it. You said one of the roles on of film had um, messages like "Can you see behind the moon?" Yeah, that was from Daguerre. So, so they, they they were talking. To one of the spirits there who wrote them a message was Louis Daguerre, who was the first, you know, who invented the yeah. daguerreotype. Yeah, it's like a pioneer of photography. So, like the also too, they had they, there's so I should I should say that the skull story is fascinating. If anybody's interested, the book to get is called "Witnessing the Impossible" by Robin Foy. It is. A huge book, but it goes play by play everything that happened in the school experiment. And the book is totally fascinating. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, there's accounts of like one seance where they had a camera outloaded and it just like jumped into the air and like 
started taking pictures by itself and then they developed the film and there was all these pictures of pictures and then they had to decode these pictures. And so I just became like very interested in their use of like photography being this holy kind of medium or, or, or yeah. 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 Something, becoming, a medium for producing, for producing holy objects. Yeah. Becoming the, this, you know, this, this holy artifact, mm-hmm. you know, um, and yeah, um, Robin Foy very and Sandra very graciously allowed me to reproduce some of those materials. And I actually they met me. Um, I met them when I was in Spain, and they brought some of the apports, which an apport is like an object that materializes in a seance room. And yeah. Skull famously had a lot of these apports, and so they they br- actually yeah, brought I had somebody on talking about this a, f- a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they brought their airports and they brought... Um, Charles. Yeah. The, Oh, yes, yes, Charles. I've talked to him before. Um, the They had this device called the TDC, the Transdimensional Communication Device, that, that said that Thomas Edison came and gave them the plans to create this thing on a etched into like a Kodachrome film. And so they brought the device that they had built based on Edison's, the spirit of Edison's plans. And they said um, that it actually produced mm-hmm. sound or something. They said so they plugged it into a regular tape recorder and they talked to Edison for 15 minutes. Ah. But I have not heard these tapes. So, um, But yeah, Robin's a, a really, really interesting person. And they're actually trying, they have um, a foundation called the Spiritualist Science. Yeah, it sounds like what they're doing Science. what the spiritualists are trying to do. Yeah, and so it's in Spain. Um, they found a building, and they're fundraising. They want to start like a whole new center, mm-hmm. and it'll be their final project. Oh. And um, I've been following their progress. And if you go, um, you know, it's online what they're doing there. And um, also Robin's book, he's I think you can get it online or direct from him. But the Witnessing the Impossible book, he's a really good writer too. And his first book. Um, about physical mediumship is a good one too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Interesting, interesting people. Uh, you also get into in the book um, things if you experienced yourself. We talked about the ectoplasmic hand. Um, the other one that I think we've talked about, um, but we didn't talk about on the last show, was the the uh, ceremony with the uh, American Indian um, medicine man. Shaman person. What is it called? A Uweepi ceremony? Mm, yeah, a Uweepi. You said it was like something like um, it was like a seance on steroids or something. Well, yeah, that the host, uh, Neil Zepkowski, he's like a medical doctor who's a medium. And he is a member of the Lilydale Assembly and was the, you know, he's been the president of the assembly at times. And he's got a geodesic dome house outside of Lilydale where he hosts the physical mediums because you can't do that in Lilydale. Oh, okay. So he has a seance room and um but he also hosts Native American uh ceremony there. And I mean he has he there's a tribe who comes and takes over his land uh every summer to do an actual Sundance ceremony, which mm-hmm. um you know, with with the hanging from the trees and everything. Oh, that um, okay. With the mm-hmm. with the stuff through the flesh and the swinging around till it rips through and all that. Yeah, and the dancing for three days. And he's done it. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't know how full on he personally was, but he hosts. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, he hosts a tribe who does it, and I mean, you can go and watch the dancers, and um, but I think it's a tri- a, a tribe tribe from the out west comes. I'm not sure exactly where. Was from. it Lakota? I mean, everybody thinks. I of would that, think but... that they th- yes, but I'm. Not sure what exactly. I seem to remember that being in the book Lakota or Lakota Sioux or something like that, and it sounds so normal. Everybody knows Lakota Sioux, but I think that's what. Well, the the Uweepi ceremony I went to was hosted by a Lakota medicine man. Okay. Why I'm why I'm pausing is somebody told me that the tribe who comes to do the sun dances from Canada. Oh, okay. Um, but I've never been to their sun dance to his sun dance, so. um, Okay. Uh, but I've been to Uweepi, and. It was really um, very interesting. You could see the definite similarities between Victorian seances and Native American, you know, Uweepi, um, you know, in, in, in Victorian style seances, there's a cabinet that you put the medium in. And a lot of people, you know, we can trace that possibly back to like the shaking tent ceremony. But like in the Uweepi, you don't use a tent. You the the medicine man is wrapped in a blanket and hogtied. Yeah. In the dark, and then as soon as the lights go off, it's just crazy amounts of phenomena everywhere happening. Like as soon as, you know, you see this man get like completely tied up, hogtied in this like thick blanket. Yeah, you said him and, then, and um, the doctor were tied up. Mm-hmm, they're both, and then as soon as the lights go off. It's just pandemonium in the dark. And you can't see anything? No, you could there was like some little flickerings of like lights every once in a while, but that otherwise it's completely pitch black and you can hear there there's drummers, you know. Um oh, okay. there's musicians and everything. Um but yeah, it's really, really fascinating. Dick Cavett, actually, there's a really interesting article <laughs> by Dick Cavett in the New York Times. God. Oh, what, I, recently? Oh, no. He oh, okay. hosted, Dick Cavett hosted a Uweepi ceremony at his apartment in Manhattan <laughs> and wrote an article about it that was in the New York Times, believe it or not. What did he say um, about it? Do you remember? He was completely, um, it's called... Bury my heart on West End. <laughs> uh, this says 2014. Oh wow! Yeah, because I I know he's still around. I saw I've um, actually met him. He's uh, he's still around. I think he's. Uh, oh really? Yeah, he's, I I believe it was Dick Cabot. Yeah, we he was uh, narrating. Uh, I was working in post production. He was narrating. I guess a collection of some of his old shows and. And he's a tiny, skinny little guy who's the friendliest person ever. Well, he wrote um, an opinion piece at the New York Times in July, on July 11th, 2014, about having a UEP ceremony in Manhattan. And it's called Bury My Heart on West End. Um, and I really like the article. Okay. Is it still, can, is it yeah. still online? Oh, okay. Then people yeah. can go look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, is this your first book? Me? Yeah. Yeah. Took mm-hmm. took 18 years, but then probably um, 
two or three years of incredible, con- intense uh, concentration to get it done. Oh yeah, it was. Whew. It, it was a lot. Um, but then as soon as I got it, I was like, oh, my gosh, I got to do another book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You get addicted. You know, it comes in and you're like waiting and waiting. And then the th- you hold it in your hands, you know, which is a yeah, weird but, moment. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, obviously, there's things I would, you know. Well, when is it ever going to be perfect? Right. But it's I am very proud of it. I'm really happy with it's it's really like a three part book. The the problem with my work was always like I was working I was building off of this spiritualist history that hardly anybody knew anything about, especially the pictures. So the first part of the book are these essays that frame it historically. Yeah, then and, and the pictures, the historical pictures. Yeah, and historical pictures and some that have never been published before mm-hmm. from um very graciously loaned from the IGPP uh, archive in um, Germany, which was Hans Bender, the parapsychologist's collection. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the curator, Andreas Fischer, um, there helped me with that. And he wrote an essay. The artist, Tony Orsler, wrote an essay kind of talking about um, mysticism and spiritualism and how it's important in um, the history of modern art, which, you know, now there's all these yeah, it's a huge thing now to look at mysticism and and spiritualism and um, theosophy and all that as part of uh, as an influence on and and the beginnings probably of modern art. You told me about Georgiana Houghton, which is like mind blowing to me. The stuff she did in what the eighteen sixties in in Britain in London. Yeah, she was an abstract. She was a painter who was doing abstract art fifty years before Kandinsky, who is considered the father of abstract expressionism and the thing is is like georgiana houghton was saying oh the spirits are doing it and kandinsky comes on and says i'm doing this you know so maybe there's there's part of the authorship that there's no complication with the authorship there but it's also why well, i think women were marginalized in the history of art um but because of hilma of clint the swedish painter um Mm-hmm. She she recently had a retrospective here in New York at the Guggenheim Museum, and it was like the most well-attended show ever. The catalog is like their most popular catalog ever. You know, it, yeah, the show I think was I have just, that catalog. It, it, I'm sorry I missed it. It looked totally amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, these – so now, you know, the very birth of modern art is being reassessed through mm-hmm. this spiritualist lens with the women in trance, like and, – and their artworks predating – um, the who we thought founded the movement. So it's a very interesting time. And Tony does, he's got this amazing collection of all things paranormal and he very graciously let me draw from it and he wrote this really wonderful essay that I love. And I wrote my own essay and then Dan Aykroyd wrote, you know, a foreword, which is great um, and I'm so thankful for it. And he mentions his father wrote a great book too about spiritualism that it's there's a lot of resonances between his dad's book and mine it's called a history of ghosts oh and he, he wrote that in 2009 wow his dad peter um and so there's actually a, a family spirit photo of the Ackroyds that they let me reproduce in the foreword so that was really cool and it was taken oh. in lilydale it was of uh dan's great grandfather mm-hmm. samuel Another yeah. Th- yeah, another thing you said that was kind of fascinating was that John Candy's aunt used to go there and uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. She grew up there and John, yeah. And John Candy used to like hang out there. Um, but when he was, when he was a child, but he wasn't a spiritualist, but it's just another cool because he was Canadian too. Um, yeah, it's just another cool. Did Aykroyd know that? That's no, I actually told him that (laughs) he hadn't, he didn't know that, but you know, to be fair, Dan or, um, John Candy, I asked his cousin, Sandy Candy, her name is Sandy Candy Eppinger. And Sandy said, (laughs) he, you know, he, they, it wasn't about being a spiritualist. It was about like visiting them and, um, meaning like he wasn't coming there. Um, you know, his family wasn't spiritualist. He was just coming to visit. So, um, he, uh, when he would tell people that he would go to New York state. He wasn't even sure where it was. So he had no, he didn't, as an adult, I don't even think he knew it was Lily Dell, ah. but his, his cousin, or he wouldn't, you know, he didn't describe it as Lily Dell. Right. He wouldn't even remember it that way. It was just some place they went. Right. Yeah. It was just a lake in New York. Uh-huh. How's the book doing? Has it, how long has it been out? About uh, almost a month maybe? Um. Yeah. I mean, the, it was, it's kind of, um, it's kind of been a little bit, tricky here in the States because my publisher's in the UK. Right. And so <clears throat> it got released by him October 17th. But here um, it starts shipping on Amazon on November 26th. And the distributor is, um, we've got to get them new copies. It's so, it's, I think it's doing well so okay. far. So, so yeah, far so it's, good. It's just, if you want to have one book on spiritualism, this is probably the one you should get or the ones you start with. Oh, I had one other question, and I thought this was interesting because you brought this up as well in your uh, text. Maybe we can end with this because it's a it's it's a distinction people don't really make. Um, you said that for the spiritualist, there's a huge difference between a ghost and a spirit. Yes. What is that difference? <clears throat> so a ghost is considered, um, you know, spirits have an intelligence to them. You can communicate with them. They're bringing forth intelligence and they're interacting with knowledge, right? Like they're, they're an intelligent energy, a ghost, um, depending on what type of a ghost, you know, but they, they kind of view it as more like of a, a tape of like a, a time warp or a time loop or like something that's got possibly gotten stuck in time or um, something that is part of rather part of time rather than like an intelligence. Right. So it's a, like um, like talking. It's like talking to Walter Cronkite instead of just watching him on TV. Right. Or like a ghost. Usually, you know, in a lot of famous ghost stories, the ghosts don't talk or speak. They just are there. You yeah. Know? Right. They don't communicate with anybody. They just do something. Right. So spirits are about communication, mm. and ghosts are about presence. Um, uh, I guess that's how I would just, and also to these, these things, it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> you know, I, I've met mediums who do rescue circles, like meaning like, oh, there's spirits that need to get to the other side. And then I met other mediums is like, God, does that work? We don't mess with that stuff. Like, <laughs> y- you know, <laughs> it depends on the person you're, you're speaking with, but, right. but yeah, like generally the word term ghost, even though we often use the term ghost in relation to spiritualism, ghost is the word ghost is not usually used by a spiritualist. Right. That makes total sense. I mean, I, I would agree with them on that. Right. Uh, and they don't say they talk to ghosts. No, you know, they would never 
say that. You yeah. know, I've actually been misquoted where somebody puts the word ghost in where I was talking and it's like, I know I would never say that, but okay. I understand <laughs> why you did that. Um, you know, people just love the term ghost. Ghost draws you in. Yeah. Yeah. You can't say spirit because it's, uh, yeah, it's not, it doesn't have the same connotation in the, in, in, at least in the North American and I guess, uh, English speaking culture that, uh, ghost does. Ghost right. is, you know, ghost is ghost hunting. Ghost is Scooby-Doo. Ghost is Haunted Mansion. Ghost is, yeah. And spirit is not. Spirit is something ephemeral almost. I would, you know, if you'd ask anybody on the street that asked you what the difference was and they said, well, there isn't really any, <laughs> you know, a spirit is a ghost. It's a, it's the, uh, it's the, uh, it's what the ghost comes from or something like that. You would, you know. Um, right. But yeah, there's a very specific line there. And I totally agree with it. You said you were working on, um, you really wanted to do another book. Are you doing that? Um, I have some ideas and I'm probably going to start working on those ideas right after the holidays, mm -hmm. but I don't know what it's, what's going to happen with them. I don't want to say too much, but I do have some, um, yeah, well, you shouldn't. <laughs> I After some, I ask you the question, I have some plans to do some some work that uh, could have could evolve into a future book. Okay. In but uh, you know, um, I also sorry. Ask the normal question. I've got this no, thing. No, it's no, like no. If, yeah, yeah. If you I talk mean, about something, it makes you less likely to do it. So <laughs> I'm often oblique with when people ask me that. They go, "Well, what are you working on now?" It's like, "Well, stuff." <laughs> but, yeah, but also I'm just working on getting the word out about the book as much yeah. as possible, too. And thank you for letting me do so, um, because I am really excited about it. I'm very I'm very happy and excited about it. And uh, you should be. It's, an it. a land, it's a landmark thing. I mean, it's going to be something that people refer to forever. I've, I've, I'm, I'm totally entranced by it. Thank you. I'm just really I'm really happy that it's finally in the world. I've worked so long on it. And so. I get. I gotta spend some time trying to get it out there. All right. Well, we'll help you with that. Where can people pick it up? I guess. Um, where can people uh, pick it up? Where you make the most money off it? <laughs> well, I mean, that would be <laughs> that would be direct from Fulger. But I understand why people. I, I understand that it's it's also like um, it's a it's a heavy book, and um, he, uh, the publisher ships FedEx, and so it's not free shipping, but. You can get it direct, and he will mail it right away if you get it at fulgur.co.uk. Um, and How then do you spell that? F-U-L-G-U-R.co.uk. Okay. okay. Um, and then, and there's also like a special edition he's doing. Oh wow! Which we haven't um, really promoted yet, um, but it comes with like a print and a leather case and a bent spoon. And, uh, <laughs> who bent the spoon um uh, my friend lauren my medium friend lauren <laughs> so uh, uh he just sits there and bends she, she just sits there and yeah. bends spoons all day for your book <laughs> um she's actually really good at it she was doing it at a pa conference once and people were filming her and they're like we want to get you in a lab and <laughs> have you bend metal um yeah but she's a registered medium in lilydale but she bent some spoons for okay me and um i got some yeah and then uh here, but otherwise so. i guess you know amazon still has the books 
And it says they're shipping November 26th on Amazon. And I think if you have Prime, it, it ships for free. But um, Fulgur will deliver right away. Okay. Um, I'm going to wait for that uh, special edition because I love those. I lo- I'm, I'm just a um, book fanatic. I still am, even with a house full of books. So. Yeah. Thank you. So, yeah, so we'll, um, yeah, we're in the process of making those now. Okay. And they'll have a signed print inside. Oh, excellent. Oh, of just oh, one of the photos in the, in the book. Mm-hmm. It, it's actually the, the cover image of the hands. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Will be printed and mounted inside. Uh-huh. So you can take it out and frame it if you want. Um, and then the cover will be, it'll be like a new cover, a leather, mm-hmm. a leather bound cover. Wow. That should be beautiful. Well, um, I had uh, probably about 40 more, I mean, probably about 30 more questions and <laughs> we'll take care of those next time we talk. <laughs> yeah, I hope, um, I hope we covered enough and I hope I wasn't we covered too. covered a lot. Yeah, I hope it all made sense. <laughs> Well, you know what? It made sense to me, and there was a little bit of background there. It's like, you know, what is spiritualism and what is this book about? And past that, as long as people have that background and that grounding, the stuff I talk about on the show is stuff that interests me and maybe not necessarily is something that would be a normal question or a normal whatever, because you can get that other places. But I really wanted to ask you about some of these things in detail. So thank you so much, Shannon. Thank you for having me, Greg. All right. What song do you want to hear at the end? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I forgot about that part again. How did I forget? Well, I can add um, it later. It's fine. <laughs> um. You... Oh, you know what? The song Myth by Beach House. That would be good. Okay. Okay, Shannon. Good luck with the book, and thanks so much. Thank you. Oh, wait. Yeah, it's... Oh, sorry. It's two words. Oh, you words. found it? <laughs> no, Sounds Beach like House you found it. Words. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Greg. Thank you so much. Sure. 